Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Connecticut has become the last New England state to include a non-binary option on its driver's licenses. Today, we'll talk to the person who helped push for the change in Maine. You have this extra backing saying, no, even the state now says that I deserve to exist and that I'm a valid person. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Ahead of the New Hampshire primary, we hear where voters stand on drug policy including prosecuting pharmaceutical companies. We have to step up and say that you are criminally responsible. And back in 2012, Jeremy Lin was the only Asian-American basketball player in the NBA, and he was on fire. Then Lin had a bad game, and an ESPN editor tried to capture it in a headline. People were misinterpreting this headline as a racial slur and not as um, an expression to describe, you know, his first display of weakness. We'll hear how he went from that moment to priesthood. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. When I was a kid, my brother was really into basketball. Growing up in rural Maine, we were each other's playmates a lot of the time. So we'd play horse, also known as pig, in our driveway, or we'd watch the NBA on TV. At that time, Kobe Bryant was indisputably the star. So when the news broke that he and his 13-year-old daughter Gianna died last Sunday in a helicopter crash, I felt it. And I'm not alone. Many other people are reacting to the death of the retired basketball star. In Springfield, Massachusetts, a memorial has been set up in the lobby of the Basketball Hall of Fame. And Tamir Lawrence was there to pay his respects. He told New England Public Radio he was shocked when he heard the news. When I started, you know, to receive messages, you know, and my phone, you know, so I just react, you know, like, you know, it was true, you know. So and I still in shock. I still believe, I still don't believe, you know, like, you know, this is real. And Roberto Martinez, also of Springfield, stopped by to drop off a bouquet of flowers. Honestly, I'm a Celtics fan, so no, I wasn't a huge fan of Kobe Bryant. But respect the player, respect the game, and uh, respect what he's accomplished. Bryant spent his entire 20-year career playing for the Los Angeles Lakers and won five NBA titles. He retired in 2016. And this year, he became eligible for enshrinement in the Basketball Hall of Fame. John DeLiva is the president of the Hall of Fame. He says Kobe Bryant's induction is a foregone conclusion and described Bryant's reaction when a staff member visited him a few months back. He was excited. He didn't want to be too excited because he wasn't going to, you know, jinx himself, which, you know, makes all of our eyes roll. But he was excited to be coming to Springfield. DeLiva says they'll announce the inductees to the Hall of Fame in April. South of Springfield at the University of Connecticut, people were also remembering Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, an up-and-coming basketball player who had a connection to UConn. Here's Bryant talking about Gianna in an interview with SNY at a UConn game last year. She started off playing soccer, which I love, but she came to me about a year and a half ago and said, can you teach me the game? 
I said, sure. We started working a little bit, and next thing you know, it became a it became a true passion of hers. So it's uh, it's wonderful. Frankie Graziano is a reporter with Connecticut Public Radio, and he was at an exhibition game this week between UConn and Team USA. Frankie, welcome to Next. Hi, Morgan. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Um, okay, so t- walk us through the connection between Kobe and Gianna Bryant and UConn. Last March, uh, the two actually showed up at a UConn basketball game. Now, um, sometime before that, uh, there was a famous conversation where Reggie Miller, an NBA Hall of Famer, was talking to Kobe, and Kobe said that his daughter was hell-bent on going to UConn. So we know that Gianna was somebody that was interested in going to the school, and Gina Oriema was interested in her playing there eventually. That's the head coach. Yeah, and Kobe and, and, and Gino had a great relationship from what I understand. Okay, so let's hear a piece of tape that you got at this exhibition game. You spoke with the head coach, Gino Oriema, after the game. Um, here's what he had to say. You, you can't react to something like that and say, well, this is what you do when this happens. You don't know what to do. You just you don't know what to say, so you just kind of sit there. And, and then you've got all these kids back with their families, and then the national team's here. And so you got to put on a happy face, and you got to do what you got to do. It wasn't easy. When you were at the game, Frankie, how were Kobe and Gianna being remembered? Um, The team actually did a nice thing before the game by putting out a jersey and flowers on an empty seat on the bench to commemorate Gianna Bryant, who was only 13 years old. They had her number on the jersey, which is the number two, and some white array of flowers uh, with uh, lilies and daisies in them. And you also talked to uh, a father and a daughter. The daughter's a basketball player. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about them and what they were wearing to the game. James Hurdle uh, is from Windsor Locks. His daughter is 12 years old. That's Jasmine. She's a point guard. I was walking around the mall of the Excel Center in Hartford, and I had happened upon him and his daughter. They were both wearing eight jerseys for Kobe Bryant. And James had said that Kobe's his favorite player, and he always tried to kind of teach his work ethic, that, that Kobe had this insane work ethic to his daughter. It doesn't matter how hard you work, I'm going to outwork you. And so that's what I tried to instill in her. It doesn't matter what the next man's doing, you got to go out there and prove yourself. Um, one thing uh, they talked to me about was the conversation that he had with his daughter afterwards. And he told her, you know, that life is not promised. If you really want to be a basketball player, if you want to be good like a Kobe Bryant or a Gianna Bryant, you got to play every game like it's your last. Frankie Graziano is a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Thanks so much for talking, Frankie. Thank you. Not long ago, most people got two options when selecting gender on their driver's licenses, male or female. Now residents of every New England state have the option to select non-binary, a gender identity that is not exclusively masculine or feminine. Connecticut was the last state in the region to make the change, rolling out the option this week. Maine was the first, making the change in 2018. We spoke with Ian Meredith Lindsay, who filed a complaint with the Maine Human Rights Commission that helped prompt the state to change. And we began our conversation with Lindsay talking about when they knew they were non-binary. One year, when we were eight, we had just moved from Colorado to Oregon, and I was trying to make some new friends. But I, I didn't know how to 
accurately introduce myself. So I told them all I was an alien um, because like, I, I didn't feel like a boy or a girl and I, I didn't know what else to say. So I just told them I was an alien. And needless to say, I didn't really get any friends out of that. Um, <laughs> but I, I've, it's something that I've kind of always known but didn't really have the language for until I think it was around 2012 was the first time I heard the word non-binary and was like, oh my gosh, that's, that is me. Like that, I finally have a word to describe myself. I would always, whenever people would ask how I identify, I would always just say, well, I, I just, I identify as me. Like I, I don't know how better to describe it. I, I just, I'm me because I, I don't feel male. I don't feel female. I, I, I'm just me. When you went to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles in Maine, um, to select non-binary or something other than male or female, did you know that you were not going to be given that option when you went? I I don't know if I necessarily knew. I was hoping that um, they might be able to figure something out. Um, I was not extremely hopeful, but I... I did have that little bit of hope of, well, maybe they, they just have something in their system that they just aren't aware of that they could make use of. Um, so I at the time, you had to have a therapist's signature on a form in order to change your gender marker on your license. Um, and so I just hand wrote a box uh, next to the male and the female box and just wrote non-binary and checked that off and had my therapist sign it. And went to the DMV and, and handed them the form. And um, they were very, they were actually very, very um, respectful and polite and very nice about saying, you know, unfortunately, our systems don't accommodate this. And so you ended up filing a complaint with the Maine Human Rights Commission. Can you talk about what the crux of the complaint was? Um. It was mostly, you know, just I, I think that this is something that should be looked at. And in the state of Maine, you know, if we we want to validate everyone, every Mainer's existence. And, and this is a piece that would really play into that. And so why can't we look at that? I'm wondering for listeners who are not non-binary or don't know somebody who identifies as non-binary, it it probably feels so obvious, but can you explain why this reality of a driver's license not being able to allow you to select the option that you identify as has an impact on you or had an impact on you personally? Yeah, it's, you know, walking through the world as a non-binary individual in a world that is very much structured around a gender binary, a very rigid gender binary, is a really challenging thing. Everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, there are these reminders thrown in your face that society and the world doesn't see you as a valid individual, doesn't see you as a human being deserving of the same treatment and acknowledgement and, and validation as anyone else. You're completely ignored, invisible, erased. Um, and, you know, it's already so hard just having to explain and your identity and just live that identity without any sort of formal legal document backing it up. It's so much easier for people to turn around and attack you and say, well, no, it's not legitimate. It's not valid. And having that 
legal documentation to back up the fact that you are a valid human being. Your identity and your existence are valid and you deserve to be here just as much as anyone else just adds that extra layer of, you know, when you're fighting against people who tell you you don't deserve to exist, you you have this extra, now this extra backing saying, no, even the state now says that I deserve to exist and that I'm a valid person. Yeah. So since that point where the state in 2018 said basically what you're saying, like, this is valid, you exist in, in, as a non-binary person and we recognize it, um, do you feel like uh, you've had different interactions with people or how, how has it felt different to you? Um, a little bit. So I still haven't actually gotten my license updated and that's just because I'm I'm waiting till I get married on Sunday and have my name changed and then I'll just do it all in, in one fell swoop. Um, so I still have the sticker on the back of my license, which actually is kind of nice because it prompts those discussions. Like if I'm going to the grocery store and picking up a bottle of wine or I'm out at a bar getting a drink, a lot of times people, when they're carting people, you know, turn around and look at the back of the license. And so it's sparked and a lot of conversation. D- just um, for our listeners, can you explain what the sticker says or what it signifies? Yes. So when they couldn't yet update the, or they're in the process of updating the systems, they issued stickers instead um, that is just a little orange sticker that says gender is X non-binary. And then once they got their systems updated, you could go back to the DMV and request a new license that actually had X in the gender marker spot on your license. So you wouldn't have to have the sticker, um, which has been Again, nice that I still have that sticker because it has sparked that conversation, which more often than not has been very positive. Ian Meredith Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate it. Coming up stories of drug addiction on Cape Cod, and how presidential candidates think we should help people with substance use disorder. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. More and more people are dying of drug overdoses in the U.S., and New England has some of the highest drug mortality rates. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Independent producer Theo Greenlee brings us voices of people impacted by substance use disorder on Cape Cod and the people trying to help. When I was a little girl, I didn't say, you know, when I grow up, I want to be an addict. Even if it's not your kids? That wasn't my dream. (laughs) Even if it's not uh, your husband or your wife? Um, It happened. I'd be willing to bet that it's your nephew. And it happens to a lot of people. Or it's your grandchild. Or it's your best friend's son. And it's happening all over the country. Uh, I mean, everyone's affected by this. 
up here in New England, we have snow, and it gets pretty cold out. And um, throughout the year, every day after school, rain or shine, snow on the ground, I would sit out there with a baseball glove and a ball waiting for my dad to come home from work. Only child. My parents spoiled me to the fullest. We would sit there and toss the ball around for hours before we, he would even go in to say hi to the rest of the family. For my sweet 16, all I wanted was just to go out to eat with my mom and dad, like for breakfast. I remember we went to Newport Creamery. But um, after he passed away, I put everything away. I couldn't play anymore. That's when a lot of things took a turn for the worst in my young life at that point. It's a multi-layered problem. And when you peel back the onion, you realize how vulnerable we all are. I came up poor. We were on food stamps, um, Section 8. My older brother was already using at that point, and that's when he kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to the world of drugs. At first, I really got into the pills. I drank and smoked weed at first. Percocets. So I started off drinking just beer. I was a... I was a user. I was I was self-medicating. It quickly escalated to LSD. Hard alcohol, hard liquor. Um, cocaine, um, sniffing heroin. It started to progress around that time. I went to my first detox for Percocets and like um, oxycodones. Um, and I ran into someone I didn't see in years. And we started hooking up. And before you know it, I was... Um, I was doing my perks, and he was getting high um, off heroin for $20, and he would be wrecked. And I'd be spending like $200-something on pills, and I'm like, either you shoot me with the IV. Um, if not, I'm just going to do it myself. And I never touched the pill again. I got into the heroin. I got lost. I had an overdose. My brother actually ended up passing away from an overdose of heroin. There was two narcotic units in front of my house. I'll never forget the day. They opened a file with, I believe it was four different pictures of him in the woods with a needle in his arm, dead purple. I felt like I lost my best friend. I lost everything. I thought, like, my life was just over. I lost my children. I lost my house. I was arrested, jailed. I was on a path where I was hoping not to come back from. I'm in recovery now. I have over a year. For 20-something years of my life, I pointed the finger at everybody else. It was your fault. It was their fault. I feel like a lot of people forget where they came from. They get clean and, you know, they think, like, they're, like, this huge individual that... You know, they like cured. You're never cured from addiction. And um, I never want to forget that. I have no excuses today. I don't want excuses today. What I want is to help my ass stay sober. And we live happily ever after. That's, that's the hopes. That story was produced by Theo Greenlee from the Transom Storytelling Workshop. In the story, you heard from Zoe DeMeo, Dylan Benoit, Matthew Bertoletti, Sheena De Silva, 
Adam Burnett, and Christopher Giles. In New England, New Hampshire is the state hit hardest by drug overdose deaths. Ahead of the primary, a recent poll from WBUR has found that a majority of residents who plan to vote in the Democratic presidential primary support even the most controversial measures to keep people alive. Here's reporter Martha Biebinger. Let's start with decriminalization. Pete Buttigieg has a plan to eliminate jail time for possession of all drugs. Andrew Yang takes a similar position for opioids. 66% of WBUR poll respondents support decriminalization, with many saying they like the idea because people addicted to drugs need treatment instead of jail. Dave Berman from Rumney says it's time to deal with drugs as we do alcohol. The so-called war on drugs is a miserable failure. But with full legalization, with regulation, very much like alcohol, I think that would be a much more responsible. uh, It's complicated. There's much more than that. But in a nutshell, that's what I see. And that's one of five questions we asked 426 voters this past weekend. The questions represent a range of strategies to address the drug overdose crisis proposed by Democratic hopefuls. The idea that drew the strongest support, 89 percent, is requiring that insurers cover drug treatment. Jody Baronian from Newton, New Hampshire, says she's watched people in her personal and professional life struggle with addiction. When that person is in that moment of wanting to seek help and they're not able to get it, then we've lost an incredible opportunity. And the number one hindrance is finding a location and available place and the insurance. Most of the candidates call for expanded access to treatment, but there's a variety within that general statement. We go into detail on our website. New Hampshire voters who plan to cast a ballot in the Democratic primary are also very enthusiastic about filing criminal charges against drug companies and executives who have allegedly fueled the crisis. Thousands of communities across the country have filed civil suits. Morley Theogoraja from Concord, New Hampshire, is among the 80 percent of voters who support going further with criminal charges. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you can just pay the fine and uh, go scot-free. We have to step up and say that you are criminally responsible. Tulsi Gabbard's opioid addiction plan includes prosecuting pharmaceutical firms. Joe Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Yang would also pursue criminal charges. Finally, we asked New Hampshire Democratic primary voters about specific harm reduction strategies, which are illegal in many areas. Despite that, 70 percent of respondents support expanding needle exchanges, and 56 percent approve of supervised consumption sites, where doctors or nurses monitor drug use and step in when needed to prevent an overdose. But many of these voters have reservations about both. Here's Jennifer Cadmus from Troy on clean needle programs. People shouldn't go around reusing dirty needles. They could get an infection and die, but is that kind of enabling people? So I'm a little skeptical of how well it works, but I I think it should happen. Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, and Yang are all yes on supervised consumption sites. They also support opening more syringe exchange programs, except for Yang, who hasn't taken a position. Many New Hampshire voters say they're surprised these issues aren't getting more attention on the campaign trail. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. And you can learn more about candidates' policies at WBUR.org.
Maybe you've had that experience where you butt dial or accidentally call someone on your phone. Sometimes it's not such a big deal. You kind of just hope the other person won't notice. But Nina Keck, a reporter at Vermont Public Radio, has this story about a pocket dial that brought surprising comfort to two people who needed it the most. Chris Frankorp has thought a lot about the grief that comes with losing a child. Her 20-year-old son Sam died from an accidental overdose in 2013. And she says canceling his cell service a year later was particularly hard. Because it meant I was never going to get another phone call from him from that number. But this is where the story takes a crazy turn. Chris and her husband live in Leicester, Vermont. And just before New Year's, Chris dreamed about Sam. This was a dream about grief. This was about my missing Sam and going into another year and a decade without him. And so I asked him for a sign that he was still with me. The next morning, as she walked her dog, she heard her phone. Even though they'd canceled Sam's phone service, his number was still on her favorites list, and it was ringing. She'd inadvertently pocket-dialed her dead son. So I immediately hung up and stood on the back lawn and laughed and said, thank you for the sign, Sam. I needed that. That was pretty good. And I went on with the rest of my day. But a few hours later, she gets a text message. According to her phone, it was a message from Sam asking, who are you? As unrealistic as it now seems, there was a sudden hope. There was sadness. There was, what do I do now? My hands were shaking. Frank Hoare worried. What if the person on the other end would ask her to delete Sam's number? But she didn't want to be rude, so she types in her name apologizes for the pocket dial, and explains that the number used to belong to her son, Sam, who had passed away. That message ended up going to Peggy Sumner. She'd been assigned Sam's old number by the phone company. First off, I I thought maybe somebody was pulling a prank or something, you know, and then if it wasn't, I wanted to let him know that it was all right because... I was in the same situation as she was on losing a child. Sumner's 23-year-old daughter, Samantha Forrest, was killed in a car crash in 2016. So I sent back a message of, I'm so sorry for your loss, and the holidays are so difficult. And then we just started texting back and forth. But it was, oh, oh, wait, we've got a message. And and we were, you know, running back and forth to the phone. To the two moms found out both their kids were named Sam F. They were nearly the same age and had grown up less than 30 miles from each other. Both Sams had a younger sibling they were especially close to. Both loved the same music and hiked the same trails. Even the way Sumner and Frank Hoare described their kids sounded similar. It was weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was such a coincidence. Strangest of all? they realized Sam and Samantha had known each other. I think the two kids found one another and decided that we needed to meet. Our moms have to talk, (laughs) you know, to help us get through this. You know, I mean, you don't really get through it. But for me, it was a good thing when I was talking to her. It made me feel better. You know, and I told her that she could call this number anytime she felt like it, (laughs) you know, or needed to. 
Peggy Sumner says she's tried attending support groups for grieving parents, but they didn't help. Yet a chance connection with another grieving mother who lost a child so much like her own, that, she says, felt good. We pretend a lot that we're happy, but in actuality, you always got that loss, that empty feeling. And she knows, you know, and yeah. The two women haven't met face-to-face yet, though both say they're looking forward to it. That story was produced by Nina Keck at Vermont Public Radio. After the break, the journey of an ESPN editor who wrote a headline in 2012 that was interpreted as a racial slur. And we'll hear about an enslaved woman who waged a legal battle for her freedom 250 years ago and won. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. I'm Morgan Springer. Welcome back to Next. We go now to the Cathedral of St. Joseph in Hartford, Connecticut. This is the sound from a video uploaded in June by the Archdiocese of Hartford. It's an ordination of two Catholic priests. We're starting here because one of the biggest social media controversies of the past decade actually prepared one of these men for priesthood. Martin Kessler from WBUR's Only a Game has the story. On the night of February 17th, 2012, Anthony Federico was working his job at the ESPN headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut. Anthony was an editor for ESPN's mobile website. He was responsible for deciding what stories people would see if they went to ESPN on their phones. Around 2.30 the next morning, Anthony hit publish on a new headline. A headline that I had used myself many times before and that sports media sites have been using for years. And... About a half hour later, I realized that it had been going viral for the wrong reason. Uh, When I realized how the social media world was taking that headline, I got up from my desk and I went to the bathroom and I threw up several times because I was aghast and horrified at, at what was going down. The headline was quickly changed. Anthony spoke to his boss, who tried to console him. But when Anthony left the office... He says he was still distraught. He drove to his parents' house. And woke them up, maybe like 4.30 in the morning. And I told them what happened. And they were like, okay, this will blow over. And it did not. That became clear a few hours later. Uh, that same boss called me early in the morning. And it's like, uh, don't, uh, don't turn on your phone. Don't look at the web. Don't look at anything. It's bad. And I asked, how bad is it? And he said, it's bad. Anthony Federico grew up outside New Haven, Connecticut. I grew up in a big Italian-American family. I'm the oldest of five kids and the best looking and the smartest and most (laughs) athletic of the five kids. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, we grew up in a very culturally Catholic family. Anthony loved sports. 
He swam and played tennis, baseball, and hockey. He went to Notre Dame High School, then Providence College, a Catholic university in Rhode Island. A lot of guys growing up in Connecticut that are sports fans maybe have it in the back of their mind to work for ESPN someday. So after graduating from Providence, Anthony got a job as a temp in ESPN's tape library. He'd go to a huge warehouse to track down videotapes for the different ESPN shows. Put it in a basket of a bicycle because the warehouse was so big that I would ride this bicycle around, you know, getting all the different tapes that had been requested. Then Anthony would return to the ESPN campus to deliver the tapes. And it was cool because I got to meet a lot of different people all over ESPN's campus. And I was asking questions like, what do you do and what is your job like? And I made a lot of friends that way. In 2007, after about six months working the tape library, 23-year-old Anthony Federico landed in that role as a content editor for ESPN's mobile website. It was really cool. My job was to watch the night of sports unfold and kind of make editorial decisions in real time about what stories we're going to lead with, what angles we're going to promote. And so you're writing the headlines and you're hitting publish. There wasn't like someone to look it over before it goes out there. Yes. Yes. It's everything needs to happen five minutes ago, kind of sense of urgency, uh, you know, deadline culture. And it was, that was part of the draw of it, how exciting and fast paced my work was. And yeah, everything happens very quickly. So jumping ahead a little bit, tell me what's going on in the sports world in early February of 2012. The talk of the sports world was Jeremy Lin. The meteoric rise of Jeremy Lin from point guard at Harvard to catching on with the Knicks. Lin puts it up. Bang! Jeremy Lin from downtown! And leading the Knicks on a winning streak that had the sports world buzzing. I believe he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated two issues in a row. How could this guy go undrafted in the NBA? How could he get cut by two teams this year? From bench warmer to big star overnight. New York. He's a devout Christian. The only Asian American player in the league. For Anthony Federico, Lin Sanity wasn't just a great story. The Knicks had always been his favorite team. It was exciting. And that brings us back to the night of February 17th, 2012. Anthony was at his desk at ESPN, and Jeremy Lin and the Knicks were playing the New Orleans Hornets. And he played poorly. He had nine turnovers in this game. But he did and the Knicks lost. The winning streak is over for Jeremy Lin. And at 2.30 in the morning, I wrote a headline to reflect his first display of weakness as a starter for the Knicks. And I wrote the headline, Chink in the Armor. This was the headline that went viral, that sent Anthony into the bathroom to throw up. I was shocked that that people were misinterpreting this headline as a racial slur and not as um, an expression to describe, you know, his first display of weakness. Anthony would later say the headline was a lapse in judgment and an awful editorial omission. When Anthony woke up a few hours after the headline was published, the story was all over the internet. My name and address got leaked to the media, so the paparazzi started following me around and started getting hate mail and death threats from all over the world and A lot of the late-night talk shows were roasting me, and, you know, my face was on a lot of newspapers, and I was this big racist villain. It was brutal. And how did you come to learn that you'd been fired? I was fired via conference call three or four days later. Wow. Um, Do you remember what was said 
during that conference call? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I'm not going to get into it. Okay. Did you feel like you should have been fired? I, um, I appreciate that that was a headline that I should have foreseen the consequences to. And I would have loved to have been um, defended that I was a, a good employee for a number of years and that everyone who knew me at the company spoke very highly of my character. So what happened next for you? Yeah, those were the worst 30 days of my life. I, uh, I filed for unemployment, which is humbling. My family was great. My, my close friends were great. I started looking for work, but I was, as you might imagine, pretty toxic in the sports media industry. I thought that I didn't deserve what happened to me, and I blamed God for that. And I thought about killing myself several times. And then Jeremy Lin himself reached out to me. I got an email from his cousin. It was polite and gracious, and it was just, when they get back from their next road trip, he'd like to meet you in Manhattan for lunch. And at first I was like, yeah, right. Just some prankster having fun with me. But Anthony checked it out. The invitation was real. Heading into the lunch with Jeremy Lin, Anthony was nervous. He didn't need to be. He told me that he didn't think that the headline was racial and intent. And that was so huge to hear him. I'm eternally grateful to him for his kindness. So we talked about the headline for a few minutes. And then we talked mostly about the world and our faith. Do you view that as like a turning point, at least for your mental health and well-being? Very much so. I felt like that was a moment of, wow, he didn't have to do this. In fact, it probably would have been easier for him to just let it go. That is the kind of gesture that someone doesn't forget. Around that same time, Anthony landed a new job with a sports media startup in Stamford, Connecticut. He says it felt like now his life could start over again. It was such relief. During his lunch breaks, Anthony started going on walks around Stamford. On one of my walks, I happened upon a Catholic church, a busy basilica in the middle of downtown Stamford that was having mass during the day. And I didn't even know that Catholics go to mass on weekdays and not just on Sundays. But the doors were open. I could see them going to church on there. And, oh, maybe that could be cool, but... Nah, I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy. So on the first day, I go past it. And second day, I go past it. And how biblical. On the third day, I decide I'm going to go to church in the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday. And I went into this 1210 mass. The regulars kind of called it the suit and tie mass because he, all the businessmen and women uh, would leave their offices and come to mass on their lunch break. And I started going to mass every day on my lunch break. And it's this oasis of stillness and silence and ritual and and it was just such a sharp contrast that it it called to me. Anthony noticed that every day before mass the priest would hear confession. And often the line was so long for people going to confession that the priest would have to apologize to the five or six people still waiting in line because he had to run up and start the mass on time. And every day I would see on this priest's face this like uh, anguish. So I was watching him one day and I said, Lord, if only we had more priests, we could have two lines of confession going. Oh, if only we had more priests. 
Anthony says that, as a kid, people had told him he should grow up to be a priest. But he hadn't really taken the idea seriously. Until now. I applied to be a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Hartford, Connecticut. And I was accepted. I thought I would go to seminary for one month and hate it. But I was there for six years, and I've never been happier. And then just last June 22nd, I was ordained a priest of Jesus Christ for the Catholic Church. How do you think this awful experience you had with, you know, social media outrage and facing death threats and all that, how do you think that will shape you as a priest? I think a sense of sympathy uh, for what people are going through and how everyone has a story that goes deeper than their worst moment or one thing they put out on the internet and... I have a sense of what it's like to be angry at God in this big way, and I can relate to them when they bring me their struggles and their hopes and their dreams and their fears. And I think that that feeling of being abandoned by God was part of this whole process of preparing me for priesthood. Father Anthony Federico is now assigned to St. Bridget of Sweden Parish in Cheshire, Connecticut. He says he still avidly follows the Yankees and Knicks. And how much do you follow uh, Jeremy Lin's career at this point? Uh, Yeah, I would say casually, but with interest when his name does come up. I said a prayer for him recently when uh, he was kind of public about his free agency situation. Back in July, Lin, who since that incredible two-week stretch with the Knicks in 2012 has struggled with injuries and bounced around to six different NBA teams, spoke on a Christian TV station in Taiwan. Lin was crying as he said, rock bottom just seems to keep getting more and more rock bottom for me. I feel like in some ways the NBA has kind of given up on me. I hope he finds whatever it is he's looking for as well. Have you been in touch with him at all since your lunch? I have not. I hope you guys can reconnect at some point. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I feel like uh, God knows what his schedule's like, but as a priest, my priority is my people in my parish and if it ever worked out that we could get together that would be great and if not that's cool too because I have such great affection for him that story was produced by WBUR's Martin Kessler about 250 years ago a group of men gathered in a house on the Housatonic River in the Berkshires in Massachusetts they were drafting a document aimed at the British crown declaring that mankind are equal and free As they were writing and discussing this document, a woman who was enslaved in the house overheard the conversation, and she became determined those words should apply to her, too. Nancy Cohen from New England Public Radio has the story of how Elizabeth Freeman later used those ideas to win her freedom. A house in Sheffield, Massachusetts, built in 1735, was home to Colonel John Ashley, his wife Hannah, and their four children. People enslaved by the Ashleys lived here, too, including Brom, Zach, John, Harry, and Elizabeth. Mark Wilson, curator of collections for the Trustees of Reservations, which owns this house, says the organization has shifted its focus from the story of Ashley, a prominent landowner and judge. We began working on retelling the story from the perspective of the enslaved members of the household. In terms of the story of Elizabeth, it wasn't being told properly and it wasn't being given its due. 
Elizabeth Freeman was brought to this house in 1758 as a teenager. She was known then as Bet, and later Mum Bet. She helped keep the fires going. She cleaned, cooked, and served. In the upstairs study on a January day in 1773, Ashley and ten other white men were writing a document called the Sheffield Resolves. We have a copy of it here. Wilson says Elizabeth was probably serving the men food or drinks and overheard these ideas being discussed. Resolved that mankind, in a state of nature, are equal, free, and independent of each other, and have a right to the undisturbed enjoyment of their lives, their liberty, and property. Historian Emily Blank of Rowan University says about two percent of the population in Massachusetts was enslaved in the 1770s, and she says at the same time white residents of the colonies, like Ashley, were arguing that America was a country of freedom. They actually complained that they were being enslaved to the British, and so enslaved people also were starting to demand that they should be free because slavery was inconsistent with this new. Rhetoric and new idea of what America was going to be as something separate from England. Clark University historian Usman Power Green says these words of freedom may have inspired Elizabeth. White men with power, one of whom is a slaveholder, are writing these words and are saying these words, and that's what's going to give her the sort of impulse, right? Not the idea that that her life is not one that was you know worth more than being a slave. It's the moment that these same white people are articulating that verbally and they're writing it down and proclaiming it that are going to just going to encourage her and try to see if those would manifest in her actual freedom. About nine years after she heard these words, something happened in this house that changed everything for Elizabeth. One day, bread was baked for the family. Lizzie, who was either Elizabeth's daughter or sister, historians disagree. Put a piece of dough in the hearth for herself. John Ashley's wife Hannah got angry and grabbed a shovel from the fireplace. Elizabeth intervened, put her arm in the way, and then was struck by this,、uh, which left a scar that she would, of course,、um, hold out for people to to sort of see and 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 wear it、um, as a sort of illustration of sort of violence that she endured as an enslaved person in the household. That act of violence was the last straw. Says Wilson. Elizabeth asked for a、uh, an apology.、Uh, she didn't receive it, so she walked away from the house. The exact details vary, but the story goes that it was winter and a foot of snow blanketed her path. Elizabeth walked several miles to the home of one of the men she had overheard writing the Sheffield Resolves. She has the resilience to just bundle up and walk to the home of the young Theodore Sedgwick, a lawyer, and ask for a suit. For her freedom, Sedgwick agreed to represent her, and he added a man also enslaved by the Ashleys to the lawsuit. Brom and Bet versus Ashley was heard in the Berkshire County Court. Historian Emily Blank says Sedgwick's argument was based on the new Massachusetts state constitution. It declared that all men are born free and equal, and Sedgwick and others believed that this was inconsistent with holding people in slavery in the state. They won their freedom, and the judge ordered John Ashley to pay thirty shillings each to Brahmin Bet. After appealing and then dropping the appeal, Ashley paid the money. Not long after, an enslaved man, Quack Walker, also sued for his freedom in Massachusetts and won. Emily Blank says, in the aftermath, two facts point to a kind of quiet emancipation in the state. One, nobody else sued for freedom. Two, 
when we get to the 1790 census, there's nobody in the state of Massachusetts that will admit that they own slaves. That doesn't mean slavery had disappeared, but Blank says the state's legal institutions did not support it. After winning her lawsuit, Bette, who now called herself Elizabeth Freeman, worked for 20 years as a paid housekeeper in the home of Theodore Sedgwick, her lawyer. In her 60s, she moved out onto her own property with her family on nearly 19 acres. She farmed and worked as a midwife. Power Green says she showed that one individual can make big change. One can challenge authority and end up uh, shifting the way people think about the world. And so for me personally, I'm tremendously inspired by her. And I'm, I'm actually shocked that she's not memorialized in Massachusetts, particularly in Western Massachusetts. You know, we need a mom bet statue in Western Massachusetts. But we do have Elizabeth Freeman's words, as written down by Catherine Maria Sedgwick, Theodore Sedgwick's daughter, including this quote. Any time, any time while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me and I had been told I must die at the end of that minute, I would have taken it. Just to stand one minute on God's earth, a free woman, I would. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. And that's our show this week. Next week, we're going to spend some time looking toward the New Hampshire primary, the first presidential primary in the 2020 election. Next is produced and now hosted by me, Morgan Springer. Thanks to John Dankosky for keeping us educated and engaged over the past three years. The executive editor is Vanessa De La Torre. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. Thanks to John Keimel for helping us out. Music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.